listening to the Renegade Economist, investigating monopoly profits, great corruption, and the policy solutions demanded. Geeky but essential, the tools to the fairest and most efficient economic system await. With your host, Carl Fitzgerald. Welcome to the Renegade Economist radio show with your host, Carl Fitzgerald broadcasting over 3CR's beautiful public airwaves. I'm so happy that the station owns its own broadcasting antenna. It doesn't have to pay monopoly rents to uh, the top end of town, which is something that many other community radio stations do have to endure. But please remember 3CR during uh, this time and please donate as we come up to the end of the financial year. All right, a few weeks ago we held a virtual lunch, a ubiquitous webinar, yes, uh, on monopolies, and it was called Airlines, Highways and Airwaves. And I was asking the question about whether monopolists are actually sharing in the pain. Are they making life easier? Are they coming to the table and reducing some of these fixed costs uh, that so many businesses face that really drowns out their, uh, their their capabilities to be able to deal in this uh, altered future we now live within. And when you think of monopoly, you often, you know, we're so goddamn US focused. We always think about them. What about here? What is going on in Australia? And it is quite shocking to see that in general, uh, monopoly rates are three times higher here in Australia than in America. So for commercial banking, our top four firms control 94% of the market versus 26% over there. Supermarkets, 91% versus 31%. Liquor retailing, 78 to 10 So we do have uh, this concentration that is adding to our uh, cost base, making uh, making it more difficult for exporters to be able to compete internationally. So in this uh, challenged future where we're not going to have our record high immigration rates, we're not going to have our infrastructure spends, uh, perhaps they're going to continue that, but... Uh, so in this altered future where our immigration rates are cut right back, uh, that easy stimulus to the economy is now gone. So governments are looking all over the place to see what we can do on our own two feet to uh, stimulate the economy. So with that background, I'd like to introduce uh, my colleague, uh, the Uber policy wonk, Jesse Hermans, to the show. Jesse, welcome. Thanks, Carl. Pleasure to be with you. I often kind of joke about uh, people being so busy playing the Monopoly board game that they don't realise for the rest of their lives uh, they're being played by monopolists. So, Jesse, what does uh, that concept mean to you in, in the modern era? Uh, I guess what Monopoly kind of boils down to is it's the ability of a company where there is some sort of either natural advantage to economies of scale where you only end up with one provider of a service because it's not practical, like competition is not feasible in that so-called market, or in other areas where the government may, through regulation or licensing, 
create a monopoly so there is no competition or very limited competition. Or there may be other things, for example, in the natural world, consider like land or the electromagnetic spectrum, where by the very nature of these sort of materialistic uh, spatial things, you can't actually have a competition in that sort of way. So that's another form of monopoly. You could say the return to monopoly is coming from, not from any sort of innovative investment or any sort of effort, but it's coming through this sort of concentrated uh, market power or natural advantage that, uh, that some particular firms or companies or other entities may enjoy. Yes, it's that ability to manufacture scarcity and, yeah, push prices up beyond their, their typical cost, which does include a reasonable rate of return. But in this day and age, uh, it's all about erecting uh, barriers around your industry, around your business, so you can push prices upwards and onwards and deliver these easy profits. Uh, and I, I talked earlier about 3CR owning their own broadcast tower and some land upon which to broadcast it from. Well, poor old Channel 10 here in Australia recently went into administration and uh, up until that point, they were part owners of uh, TX Australia, which uh, owns the TV broadcast towers on behalf of uh, free TV 9, 7 and once upon a time 10. But of course, when they went into administration, 9 and 7 quickly jumped on that and bought 10 share out from them. So they now have to rent uh, uh, these broadcast towers off their competitors who are probably going to keep increasing prices. Um, but of course, ACCC went a bit soft on it and said, look, that's okay because we have Broadcast Australia, a competitor that was um, previously privatised by Macquarie Bank, uh, now owned by the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board and rebranded as BAI Communications. They control the towers for SBS and ABC through some uh, 400 towers. So... Uh, yeah, let's hope that Channel 10 doesn't face these higher broadcast rents through really... Uh, is that a form of creative destruction, Jesse? I mean, what's the difference between Schumpeter's uh, creative destruction, you know, this natural capitalist process of businesses growing and then uh, being overtaken the, the fundamental difference is, is in a monopoly, there's no real uh, means to undermine the monopoly with competition. So in the case of those radio towers, right, in one sense, yeah, the companies, the television or the, um, the broadcasting companies that own those, um, those assets, uh, they themselves, yeah, they can they can go under, they can go bankrupt like Channel 10 did. And in some sense, that is a form of creative destruction. But the problem is, is that no one can really undermine that broadcasting spectrum uh, monopoly in the sense that you can't just erect your own um, broadcasting tower uh, and then start competing for that part of the spectrum that they're using because that's a regulated space. You can't um, 
interfere with that particular frequency that they're using, uh, that they may have a license over or the area in which they are allowed to operate that in. Um, so there's no real room to, uh, I guess, compete or destroy or undermine that particular part of the business. Uh, the other thing is, yes, they're, they're subject to competition. But, um, like, for example, you can also argue that uh, uh, through things like the internet, um, in part, which is why the MBN was sabotaged, that uh, um, things like that or radio, you can argue that, oh, the, these different areas or different medias or like print news, these, these sort of things, like, can in some ways, uh, indirectly compete with that as a form of distributing information. Um, but if you're actually talking about competing within that particular uh, bandwidth space itself, no, you can't actually uh, undermine that part of the business. Like that part, that that thing will live on. It's not like that, that particular broadcasting tower is ever going to go bust. That thing can get passed around, sold between companies, but that particular asset or at least the ability to control that part of the spectrum is something that persists and there's no real kind of innovative edge i mean the spectrum is the spectrum when you use it um it's it's not like there's a way to kind of value add frequencies this is just a physical constraint of the natural world that we can't really change I have heard that some change. community radio stations in melbourne are paying some a hundred thousand dollars a year uh, so it's a lot of fundraising they have to engage in to pay these uh, a broadcast tower monopolists uh, who have access to the, the electromagnetic spectrum. So instead of Commercial Radio Australia demanding a bailout uh, from government, uh, would have been better if uh, the feds had have looked further up the tree to say, well, look, you broadcast towers, you could reduce uh, your rents uh, according to the market value, now that so many advertisers have uh, left the market uh, struggling to cover uh, their basic costs. So another example that's been uh, heavily in the news, of course, has been uh, the, the bankruptcy of Virgin Airlines. With some $5 billion worth of debt, they launched a uh, no monopoly in the skies kind of campaign in their dying days, trying to ensure that they were bailed out. But of course, they had such a big debt overhead and such an uncertain future that the government rightly avoided that. Um, but Jesse, when it comes to these sort of bailouts, what, what are some of the things government should be looking at to ensure that uh, the public interest is well represented? Well, the case with Virgin is interesting because technically airlines as an industry is actually, uh, and it, before the COVID crisis, we would argue that this particular industry was competitive. It was a competitive market, even though there were only two main players, uh, Qantas and Virgin, there was enough competition between those two players uh, to actually keep the airline prices falling, which was good for consumers. Now, you might argue, oh, this is a form of creative destruction. It's capitalism. It's just a private company going bust. What's the big deal? The problem is, is that airlines as an uh, industry sector, it's very sort of high barriers to entry to be able to enter that space and compete again. So rather than just having the market fail and then just waiting for the market to fix itself, which could take a long time, 
uh, it would be much better to make sure that the market remains competitive and that there are two players in the market. So then how do you do that without kind of creating a, a perverse incentive? It's essentially the two big to fail arguments. So the problem there is then is that uh, how, how do we make this work so then Virgin itself is not just becoming a case of governments bailing out badly managed companies? And that equity mate component of governments being able to ensure that they claim some sort of ownership for the for the short-term liquidity injection is is key there so that in time, if such a company did recover, uh, the public could receive a return on its investment. And too often mm. the money is just handed out without any reasonable uh, recognition of the public's role there and their right to a return on that crucial liquidity at the key point in time. Yeah, that's that's right. The government's going to provide compensation. It should come with some sort of benefit to the government on the upside. Like in the case of New Zealand, right, they bailed out their airline, New Zealand Air, which is already partially government-owned anyway. So they, they opened up a special loan facility. They offered a loan, I think it was at like 7% interest in um, two different stages in which it needs to be repaid. They also mandated no dividends could be paid until the loan was repaid or the loan could later on be swapped for more equity in the company. 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. You're on 3CR's A Renegade Economist, where we're talking all things Monopoly here and hoping that uh, this helps build people's understanding as we navigate these tricky pandemic economic issues that are coming at us thick and fast. It's interesting to see that ANSET actually hit financial troubles in 2001-2, and we haven't been able to find much research on that, but that wasn't long after Australia's airports started to be privatised. So when you consider that Australia has four of the most profitable 10 airports in the world with three of the top five, there's something further to be investigated there and we know that we know that the ACCC has been releasing these regular reports into the airports and Jesse you headed up our submission to the Productivity Commission's Economic Regulation of Airports a submission in 2019 so maybe you can run through some of the headline findings from that. I guess the deal with privatised airports is ultimately when you have an airport it's not like people can just set up their own airports and start having planes come in. Like generally speaking, airports are a form of government infrastructure. And in the case that we have private airports is only because the government built them, ran them, and then decided to, I guess, privatise the the, the airports after the fact. Uh, So in that sense, then, there are a number of issues when it comes to airports as a monopoly because... When it comes to like people using air travel, it's not like they can choose uh, freely, I'm going to go to this airport to then take a plane to this place because there's not like there are many options around or at least in the case of the airlines as well that are choosing where to fly out the planes from. Uh, so there are a number of issues with these airports. Uh, one of the things is we effectively just granted them a whole bunch of exemptions because they're on Commonwealth land. They're exempt from land tax, even though they have these huge shopping centres, uh, commercial centres, where they're typically making like a lot of money out of the, the real estate there. And yet, no one is seeing a cent of that. 
after the privatization and all the um, increased growth in those rents and so on that comes from those sectors. You've got the car parking sort of monopolies that are quite significant in the real estate there as well. And then you've got other problems with like when it comes to actually building transport links that might compete with those car parks like train stations, you actually end up with these entrenched interests that are either opposed to undermining that kind of, I guess you could say the car parking transport monopoly. Or if you are to build a rail link, they'll really slug the consumers excessive amounts of money to be able to go to the station and have that connection fee. These are all general issues that people find when they encounter an airport. But the bigger issue is also for the airlines themselves, because when the airlines are trying to uh, negotiate for the fees that they have to pay in order to just service their planes, like have their planes in the landing slots and so on, they don't have a lot of negotiating power in that particular area. So like there were some issues where like the airline industry, uh, like Qantas and Virgin, they've been complaining about these really high airport landing slot fees. But in reality, there's nothing they can do about it. Like it's threatened to pull out, but if they pull out, they don't have any customers and then the other airline will just come in and then take their customers. So what, what are they to do? And certainly uh, Qantas has taken Perth Airport to court and vice versa. There's been a couple of court cases in recent times and, yeah, there's uh, quite a bit of uh, frustration in the air about that. But uh, when you look at it, these airport takeoff and landing charges have risen 26%. Uh, in real terms over the last decade. But uh, ticket prices, the competition in the air has seen ticket prices fall by 40% during the same period. So the margins have uh, tightened up for the airlines, those in competition, but they've fattened up for the monopolists who just have to sit there and uh, yeah, enjoy these monopoly rents that, that come to them. So it's a big issue and the incredibly high profit margins, uh, their earnings before interest depreciation, taxation and amortisation. Doesn't that get you excited? Uh, We're up to 46% for these landing slots and 70% for car parking operations. So uh, it's a licence to print money when you own a monopoly. And I was reminded of Rupert Murdoch's uh, famous statement on the topic. Monopoly is a terrible thing until you get one. If I owned it, I wouldn't sell it. But if you're silly enough to sell, I'll buy. It's it's an issue that governments need to recognise now that the economy is on such a a tight string Uh, We can no longer have this uh, luxury of supporting rentiers, supporting these monopolists and this lavish ability to push prices up beyond the cost of production. So what about our highways, Jesse? What do you have to say about uh, uh, the Macquarie banks, the transurbans of the world and and how uh, these similar business practices and monopolists have been felt through our, uh, our road networks? I guess the issue with these toll roads is actually the problem is a lot of the supposed private sector 
risk-taking that was supposed to happen in the public-private partnerships. Like the first CityLink toll road itself, there was actually a significant amount of risk put onto the private company in terms of the traffic forecasts and everything. But now, ever since then, toll roads have really just become this really stupid franchise model where essentially the government will just guarantee the private company that regardless of whether the traffic forecasts are met, we're going to pay you the money. In which case then, where is the risk being shifted? Like it's just going back to the government. So the government may as well just do it themselves. In in the instance of CityLink though, we still have another problem though where we've got like a significant monopoly on a on a particular piece of infrastructure where they are able to extract uh, significant uh, rents there. Not to say that there aren't costs involved in maintaining some of those tunnels and the roads and so on, but yeah, it's not ideal. But we have actually seen some uh, move away from that sort of uh, structure now with the northeast link in Victoria. So now the government intends to do public sector tolling. The um, public sector will have a tolling company. We'll actually keep those tolls in government hands and therefore we will have a control over the, I guess, the, the rents or the, the tolling structure and be able to retain that for the uh, public. Yeah, and of course, we'd prefer that to be funded out of uh, the locational values, the land value capture around those on-off ramps. There will be uh, gold mines for insiders who happen to figure out through some entrepreneurial skill, uh, exactly what land is uh, is closest to that on-off ramp. So uh, let's hope there isn't too much of that. But for me, you know, Macquarie Bank was so influential in helping drive this privatisation agenda. Uh, they had uh, the Macquarie Infrastructure Group. I'm going to post in the show notes an incredible article by um, Chris Jefferis and Frank Stilwell on uh, Macquarie Bank. It was written, I think, way back in 06, 07, but it still stands the test of time. And uh, it pretty well talked about how Macquarie Bank was an expert in two things. One was uh, refinancing loans between Macquarie Bank, Macquarie Infrastructure Group, um, and Aussie Home Loans, and using that refinancing to distribute uh, dividends to their shareholders. Jeffress writes, uh, this structure of credit creation, securitization where Macquarie acts as middleman between Aussie home loans and a super fund helps to provide a cheap source of liquidity for refinancing infrastructure and property trusts, generating income and preventing speculative financing units from necessarily turning into Ponzi structures. And uh, in effect, this article goes on to say that Macquarie Bank's profits represent a rent charge for channeling superannuation through the financial sector rather than using taxation to directly finance infrastructure provision. That's where the Millionaire's Factory was largely expanded. And of course, Transurban have been absolute masters in avoiding taxes whilst generating uh, significant profits uh, Kim Edwards and uh, the infamous Tony Shepherd, who was the mastermind behind the Abbott hockey budget fiasco, I think, of 2013-14. Uh, yeah, they were uh, the key players in getting the Transurban project up and running. And 
yeah, the profits they've now established are incredible. It's costing Victorian taxpayers some $600 million in toll revenues a year. And we also gave them uh, that land. We even gifted them uh, a land tax exemption for their headquarters in Richmond. So uh, these are, again, public handouts that uh, we should be receiving uh, some basic uh, recompense for. And because uh, Transurban are so good at avoiding paying their taxes, I've been uh, trying to build up a case for a tollmaster's licence fee where the value of those assets uh, underneath these tollways, underneath their HQ would be valued and they would have to pay a percentage charge against that to uh, contribute to uh, the public coffers. So now governments are going to be so stretched, things like that may well have more time in the sun to see if uh, society can accept a group like Transurban actually paying their way. So Jesse, yesterday I had a small business owner up here on the farm and telling me about how uh, she's stuck with two leases. Landlords only cut uh, rents by 25%, but the utilities haven't really contributed much. They're not doing anything to make her life any easier and she is incredibly stressed out, possibly you know, going to have to uh, file for bankruptcy on, on at least one of these business ventures. Uh, it's really uh, unfortunate to hear, but this problem actually, it comes down to a lot of the privatization that we've seen uh, in utilities. So you'll find it really fascinating, actually, when you look at all the different announcements that have come out with the COVID-19 economic response policy from different state governments. There's a very interesting distinction that those states that still have their, for example, their electricity utilities, Interestingly enough, the states that still own their uh, their generation and their distribution and to some extent also their retail, such as Queensland, uh, the ACT, uh, the Northern Territory, Tasmania. point is, is that the states that still own pretty much all of their electricity networks, those states have been able to announce various measures of relief in terms of bills and charges and freezing fee increases and these sort of things, which has been given not only to households, but also to businesses. But then the states that have privatized most of their energy assets, such as New South Wales and Victoria, especially, those states have done nothing in this area. So what we actually see then is the problem is when you privatize these utilities, the flexibility of the government to then use the utilities as a way to kind of soften these economic impacts has been removed. And they're just protecting these private utility companies, which have a monopoly sort of regulated industry from being able to experience any sort of profit losses. Like how, no, for example, state government is going to come in and say, oh, uh, you electricity providers, you need to take a cut in your prices for the next year or we need to freeze prices. No one has ever considered doing this as far as I'm aware. And then there's also, for example, uh, public transport. Uh, we haven't really seen, I guess, uh, any talk about imposing those sort of losses in the uh, public transport sector. All these sort of factors kind of reveal that when you privatise these utilities, unless the government is going to come in and force the private owners to take losses through direct regulation, nothing is going to stop them from bleeding people dry in a time of crisis.
So at least when they were in public ownership, there is that flexibility there because the government is more willing to actually change its prices to respond to the crisis. Jesse Hermans, we're just about out of time, but you know, what are your concluding comments on the power of monopoly? I guess the important thing for us to think about is now the crisis is sort of the, the worst of it has kind of passed and we're now entering this slow unwinding phase in the recovery period. We really need to start looking at the different sectors which got away relatively unscathed because of this sort of monopoly power. And then we need to start looking at how can we make sure that in the recovery that they start to contribute more of their fair share towards helping things pick up again. Well, thank you very much, Jesse, for joining us here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. Thanks, Carl. I look forward to being back with you here on the public airwaves in another month. 